all you spooky listeners. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Morbid Curiosity, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Nicole. I'll be taking you through some of the most heinous, shocking, and morbid crimes, including, of course, the paranormal. Listener discretion is advised. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram at morbid, period, curiosity, period, TC podcast where you can find photos related to our cases, including crime scene photos on occasion, of course, with the exception of postmortem photos. Thank you for tuning in. Enjoy. Hey guys, thanks for coming back for episode number eight. We're going to be talking about Herbert Richard Baumeister. Um, he is responsible for Fox Hollow Murders. Um, our sources for today are pulled from thoughtco.com, of course, wikipedia.org, and medium.com. So let's get started. So Herbert Richard Baumeister was born April 7, 1947 to Dr. Herbert E. and Elizabeth Baumeister of Indianapolis, the oldest of four children. His father was an anesthesiologist. Um, soon after the last child was born, the family moved to the affluent area of Indianapolis called Washington Township. Uh, by all accounts, Herbert had a normal childhood, uh, but when he reached adolescence, he changed. So with adolescence, this brings us to Herbert, um, a little bit older. He did begin to obsess over some pretty vile and disgusting things, he developed a very disturbing sense of humor and appeared to lose his ability to judge right from wrong. Rumors circulated about him urinating on a teacher's desk and even putting a dead crow on one of the teacher's desks as well. Now, his peers saw this morbid behavior and started to distance themselves. Um, he was very disruptive and volatile in class, per the teachers. So the teachers decided to reach out to his parents for a little assistance. Now, his parents also noticed changes with his behavior. Um, his parents did send him for a medical evaluation, which revealed that Herbert was schizophrenic. And not only that, he suffered from multiple personality disorder. Uh, no clear treatment was sought out by his parents after discovering his mental um, state. So we are not really sure about what was done then. Now, I do know during the 1960s, uh, they did ECT therapy, which if you don't know what that is, that is electroconclusive therapy, so shock therapy. Um, it was the most common treatment for people with schizophrenia. Um, people with that disease was like more often to be institutionalized. Um, it was accepted as a practice to shock unruly patients several times a day. Now, they did not have hopes of curing them with this, but it made them more manageable for hospital staff. In the mid-1970s, drug therapy replaced ECT therapy because it was more humane and productive. Now, many patients on the drug therapy could lead normal, you know, fairly normal lives. Um, now, whether Herbert received drug therapy or ECT therapy, it is unknown. Now, although he did have these mental um, disabilities or diseases. Uh, he did continue in public high school. Uh, he did maintain his grades, although he did fail socially, of course. 
The school's extracurricular energy was mainly focused on sports. So members of the football team and their friends were the most popular clique. Uh, Herbert and all of this group continuously tried to gain their acceptance, but was rejected over and over. Now, for him, it was all or nothing. Uh, either he would be accepted into the group or he would be alone. Now, he did finish his final high school year in solitude by himself. So just some more information about what kind of signs he had um, that could have potentially warned people of how he was going to turn out. Um, in You Think You Know Me by author Ryan Green um, said that Herbert was thought of a sweet, sensitive, happy-go-lucky child. Then puberty hit, like we said earlier, and things drastically changed. Now, it wasn't a quick or obvious change, uh, like most would think, but with the, the passions now that he had and the things that he became interested in after puberty, they were pretty vile. Um, he started to develop a fascination with death, he began to make known of his antisocial behavior through some pretty obscene jokes and pranks. Um, Herbert also wasn't afraid to share his thoughts around the other boys anymore. Um, he did talk to them about uh, wondering what urine would taste like and began chasing these kids around asking to drink their urine. Um, that was kind of a more of the non-harmful instances of his change. Um, but when Herbert wasn't punished for this behavior, he began to up the ante. He urinated on the teacher's desk, as we said before, as well as the dead crow on another teacher's desk. He loved to play with dead animals, often squeezing them, feeling their small bones break. And that actually aroused him. Now, Herbert never dated throughout high school and quite possibly didn't even know if he was gay yet just because of the wide range of emotions and fascinations he was developing. Um, now, later, as an employee at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, he urinated on a letter to the state governor. Now, of course, he was fired for that offense. He did get some kind of punishment, finally. Now comes college and marriage. So in 1965, he attended Indiana University. Again, he dealt with being an outcast because of his strange and odd behavior. Uh, he dropped out in his first semester. Uh, now pressured by his father, he did return in 1967 to study anatomy and dropped out again before the semester ended. This time, however, being at IU was not a total loss. He did meet Julia Sater. Um, she was a high school journalism teacher and a part-time IU student. They began dating and found that they actually had a lot in common. So besides being extremely conservative politically, they shared an entrepreneurial spirit and dreamed of owning their own businesses. In 1971, they married, uh, but six months into the marriage for unknown reasons, um, Barmeister's father had Herbert commit committed to a mental institution, excuse me, where he stayed for about two months. Um, now, whatever happened did not ruin his marriage, but Juliana was in love with her husband despite his odd behavior. So she did stay. So nine years into their marriage, they started a family. So Marie was born in 1979, Erich in 1981, and Emily in 1984. Now, before Herbert lost his BMV job, Things seemed to be going well. So Juliana quit her job to become like a full-time mother at home, but then returned to work when Herbert could not find steady work. Um, as we know, he can't keep jobs because he has crazy behavior. 
So, um, as a temporary stay-at-home dad, Herbert was a caring, loving father to his kids, um, but being jobless left too much time on his hands, and unknown to Julia, he began drinking a lot and hanging out at some local gay bars. Now, Herbert's father did pull quite a few strings and got him a job as a copy boy at Indianapolis Star. Uh, kind of running report stories between desks, performing other errands. Um, it was a pretty low-level position, but Herbert dove into it. He was eager to start a new career, and unfortunately, his constant efforts to gain positive feedback from the brass became irritating. Um, he obsessed over ways to fit in with his co-workers, but of course, again, never succeeded. Um, he was sour, and he was unable to handle this nobody status. He eventually left for a job at the Borough of Motor Vehicles, which is the BMV job that I just um, talked about just a second ago. Now, he tried to start this job with a whole new attitude. Um, so at the newspaper job, he was kind of like childlike and like overeager to get things done and to get recognized. Um, he did often display his like feelings like he was hurt whenever people didn't recognize him for his job. Um, so at the BV, BMV job, he wanted to be a little bit different. So he reenacted what he saw at his old job with the supervisors there. So he became very bossy and aggressive towards his coworkers. He lashed out at them for no reason, um, kind of like he was playing a role. Um, so he did try to act like the, quote, good leaders he thought that he had at the newspaper. So again, Herbert was labeled an oddball. His behavior was just too erratic, and his sense of propriety was at times way off. Uh, one year, he sent a Christmas card to everyone at work that pictured him with another man, both dressed in holiday drag. Now, if I got a card like that, honestly, I think it would be kind of cool, but people maybe didn't feel the same. So, in the early 70s, few saw humor in that versus now. Um, talk around the water cooler was that Herbert was a closet homosexual and a nutcase. Uh, not my words. That's just what they describe him as. Um, so, after about 10 years... Despite Herbert's poor relationship with his co-workers, he actually was recognized as an intelligent go-getter who produced results and was promoted to program director. So, um, in 1985, within a year of the promotion he had wanted for so long, he was term terminated excuse me, after he urinated on a letter addressed to the then Indiana governor, um, Robert D. Orr. Uh, the act substantiated rumors about who was responsible for the urine, and then they found out months later that it was him. So, again, he's peeing on things. Why he has such a fascination with urinating on things, nobody knows. So, later in 1988, he borrowed about four grand from his mother. Um, him and Juliana opened a thrift store, which they named Save-A-Lot. Um, they stocked it with gently used quality clothing, furniture, and some other used items. Now, a percentage of the store's profit went to the Children's Bureau, Bureau I can never say that word, sorry guys, of Indianapolis, uh, which business was booming when they first opened. So, the profit was so strong in the first year that they had opened a second store. So, in within three years after having lived paycheck to paycheck, they were rich for that time period. Um, when their fortunes changed by the success of their thrift stores, they actually started settling down into their lives. 
Now, Julie often took the kids to the family lake house during the summer, left Herbert at home by himself, you know, hang out. So much of the time, uh, just like earlier we talked, he went to some of the local gay bars there. Um, so with an empty house, he was finally able to explore his sexuality and act out some of his fantasies that he had um, instead of just meeting people at bars and going home to a family. So he began to take the men back to the house to, quote, party, um, which the party would end up with him strangling the men with a hose in the pool area. Um, the bodies did begin to add up. Uh, we'll talk about Tony Harris in a minute. But Tony Harris met Herbert. So when he met him, the bodies were already pretty much piled up, right? So he was able to give a name and address to investigators, and they were able to start putting pressure on Herbert Baumeister for murder. Now, just to jump back, um, in September 1985, he was um, arrested, um, but pretty much just received like a slap on the hands um, after being charged in a hit and run accident while driving drunk. Now, six months later, he received charges with stealing a friend's car and conspiracy to commit theft. But of course, those charges were pretty much slap on the wrist as well. Um, now, I did forget to mention earlier, during the thrift store time of them opening the thrift store, his dad did pass away. Um, reasons unknown, I couldn't really find it. And also, I'm not really sure how it impacted Herbert. Um, I'm sure he was upset and it did not help how he became or what he became. Now, in 1991, um, him and Julie, or Juliana, they moved to their dream home. It was an 18-acre horse ranch called Fox Hollow Farms. It was in an upscale Westfield area just outside Indianapolis in the Hamilton County. Um, it was large. It was beautiful. It was a million-dollar semi-mansion. Um, it had all the bells and whistles, including a stable and an indoor pool. Uh, there's photos of the pool on Instagram if you want to go check it out. Um, now, remarkably, Herbert become, like, became a well-respected and successful family man who gave to charities. Um, unfortunately, stress from working so closely together soon followed because they were working the thrift store business together. So from the start of the business, Herbert had treated Juliana as an employee instead of his wife, um, often yelling at her for absolutely no reason. So to keep the peace, she took a backseat on business decisions, uh, but it took a toll on the marriage and the couple argued and separated on and off for the next several years. Now, the Save-A-Lot stores had a reputation for being very clean and organized, but the opposite could be said about their home. Um, the once meticulously maintained grounds became overgrown with weeds. Um, the rooms were really messy and housekeeping was a very low priority for them. Uh, the only area that they seemed to care about was the pool house. He kept the wet bar completely stocked and filled, um, had crazy decor everywhere, including mannequins that he dressed up and positioned to give off the appearance of a lavish pool party. Um, which is kind of weird, right? Okay. Anyway, so to escape the turmoil, uh, Juliana and the children often stayed with, uh, Herbert's mother at the Lake Wallacey condominium. I looked it up. Don't, 
don't judge me. I still am dyslexic and still read things wrong. Anyway, so Herbert usually remained behind to run the stores, um, or at least that's what he told Juliana. We all know that he likes to go to the gay bars and bring men back or whatever, whatever. So he probably didn't even care that she was gone most of the time. Now, um, so, you know, they had three kids. Uh, we mentioned them earlier. Now, their son, Erich, I think that's how you say his name. Again, I looked it up. That's what I could find. So, in 1994, um, their 13-year-old son, Erich, or Erich, was playing in a wooded area behind their home, and he found a partially buried human skeleton. He showed what he found to his mother, and she, of course, was like, ha, ha, Herbert, what, what is this? What, what is going on? Kind of thing. Now, he told her that his father had used skeletons in his research and that after finding one while cleaning the garage, um, like, he had buried it. So, like, he found it, he buried it in the woods, it's whatever. So, surprisingly, she actually believed him. Um, which, I mean, I guess, I guess you would believe your husband. Uh, although, for me, if my husband ever had a skeleton buried on their property, I would uh, run far away. Anyway, so... Not long after uh, the second store opened for Save-A-Lot, the business began to lose money. It started losing their luster. So uh, Herbert started drinking during the day and started acting belligerently to the customers and employees. And the store soon looked like crap. Uh, they did not clean it. They did not keep it organized. It's kind of like it's kind of like a Dollar General. The new Dollar Generals always look super nice right? Everything's in, in place. And then after a time, they just don't care. So at night, um, unknown to Juliana, Herbert cruised gay bars, like we said earlier, and then retreated to his pool house where he would spend hours crying about the dying business. Juliana was super exhausted from worry and bills were starting to pile up. And her husband was just acting pretty much like a child who lost his toy and not only that, he was starting to act stranger, like weirder than normal, I guess you would say. So in come the missing people, right? The missing persons. Uh, while him and Juliana were trying to fix their failing business and marriage, a major murder investigation was underway in Indianapolis. So in 1977, Virgil Vandegrift, a highly respected retired Marion County Sheriff, opened Vandegrift and Associates, Inc., which was a private investigation firm, like a PI firm, in Indianapolis, specializing in missing persons cases. So in June 1994, Vandegrift was um, contacted by a mother of a 28-year-old Alan Brosard, um, who she said was missing. Uh, she last saw him. He was headed to meet his partner at a popular gay bar called Brothers. He never came back home. Not even a week later, uh, Vandergriff received a call from another mother about her missing son. So in July, Roger Goodlett, 32, had left his parents home to also go to a gay bar downtown Indianapolis, but never arrived. Uh, Bosart and Goodlett shared a lifestyle, looked alike, and were about the same age. Um, they did vanish en route to a gay bar. Vandegrift distributed missing persons posters at gay bars around the entire city. Um, family members and friends of the young men and customers at the bars were interviewed. 
Uh, Vandergriff learned that Goodlett was last seen willingly entering a blue car with Ohio plates. So after people started going missing, uh, Vandergriff also received a call from a gay magazine publisher who told him that several gay men had disappeared in Indianapolis over the previous few years. Convinced that he was dealing with a serial killer, he took his suspicions to the Indianapolis Police Department. Um, now, unfortunately, since they were gay men, they were apparently a low priority. Um, possibly what they thought was that the men had left the areas with someone without telling their families to freely practice their gay lifestyles, which I call BS on because that is insane. Just like how these police departments are like, eh, but she's 18, she can decide for herself. You know, blah, blah, blah. People go missing and people are just like, eh, whatever. Irritates me. It's a pet peeve. Anyway, so I don't, I don't care what your lifestyle is. As long as you're not hurting people, I don't really care. Everyone's a person. And everyone deserves to be found and safe. Now, moving on from my rant, um, the I-70 murders. Now, while investigating, he found that there was an ongoing active investigation into multiple murders of gay men in Ohio. They began in 1989, and they ended in the mid-90s. Um, now, bodies had been dumped along Interstate 70, and of course, the media dubbed them the I-70 murders um, for media purposes. So, four victims were from Indianapolis. Now, weeks after he distributed the posters at the local bars, he was contacted by a man named uh, Tony Harris, um, who said he was certain that he spent time with a person responsible for Goodless' disappearance. Now, Tony said he went to the police and the FBI, but they disregarded his information. Uh, Vandergriff set up a series of interviews and a bizarre story unfolded before him. So let's get into it. So let's get into Tony Harris's story here. So he said while he was at one of the gay clubs slash bars, um, he noticed a man captivated by the missing person's poster of his friend Roger Goodlett. He was just like staring at it, I guess. So as he continued to watch this man, something convinced Tony that the man had information about his friend's disappearance. So to try to learn more, Tony, you know, done something a little dangerous. Never do this, but, you know, worked out for Tony, thankfully. So Tony introduced himself. He went over there, introduced himself to this guy. The guy said, oh, my name is Brian Smart. And yes, I am using bunny ears every time I say Brian, because we all know who it is. So Brian Smart, he was a supposed landscaper from Ohio. Um, now, when Tony tried to bring up Goodlett, Brian became super evasive. So as the evening progressed, uh, Brian invited Tony to join him for a swim at his house, hmm, where he was temporarily living. Uh, doing some landscaping for new owners who were away, he said. Tony agreed, uh, got into Brian's Buick, which had, guess what, Ohio plates. Uh, Tony was not familiar with northern Indianapolis, so he could not say where the house even was. Um, though he described the area as having horse ranches and large homes, he also described a split rail fence and that had a sign that said farm something. All he caught was farm when they wrote in. 
So the sign was at the front of the driveway that uh, Brian, or Smart, had turned into. Now, Tony described a large Tudor home, which he and Brian entered through a side door. He described the interior of the home as being packed with furniture and boxes. Um, he followed Brian through the house and down the steps to the bar and pool area, which had mannequins set up all around the pool, which we said earlier, um, to pose as a lavish pool party. Now, Tony did find this very odd and weird. Uh, Brian told him that his boss didn't like to be alone, and that's why there were mannequins everywhere. So, Brian offered Tony a drink. Of course, smart boy, or smart man, he turned that drink down. Now, once he rejected the drink, Brian excused himself, and he returned super talkative. Uh, Tony actually suspected that he went in there to snort some cocaine at some point, because um, he was just, like, super hyper and talkative when he came back. So, who knows? Um, but at some point, Brian brought up autoerotic asphyxiation, if you don't know what that is, that means you enjoy or get sexual pleasure um, while choking someone or being choked. Um, he asked Tony to do it with him, right? So Tony went along and was like, sure. So Brian wanted him to choke him with a hose uh, while he masturbated. So Tony did so. Uh, Brian then said it was his turn to do it to Tony. Again, Tony was like, eh, sure, we'll go along with it. He went along with it, and as Brian began choking him, it became super obvious that he was not going to let him go. Like, he was going to choke him to death. So, Tony, smart man, I must say, he pretended to pass out, and Brian released the hose, I guess kind of in a panic, like, ooh, you know? Um, when he opened his eyes, Bran Brian, not Brandon, excuse me, Brian, became rattled and said that he was scared because he had passed out. So after Tony faked like he passed out, um, now you got to take into consideration here. Tony was considerably larger than Brian, which was probably one of the reasons why he survived. Um, the second reason, he refused the drinks that Brian had prepared for him earlier. Who's to say those weren't laced with something to make him pass out? Nobody knows. Um, Brian drove Tony back to Indianapolis after trying to freaking strangle this man, right? He drove him back. They agreed to meet the following week. Um, so Vandergriff was like, you're meeting. Okay, cool. So he's going to have someone follow them for their second meeting, but Brian never showed up. So believing Tony's story, Vandergriff turned to police again. Uh, but this time he contacted someone he kind of already knew and respected. So that was Detective Mary Wilson. Uh, she worked in missing persons and he respected her. He kind of knew about her. I'm not really sure if they knew of each other, but he knew her and respected her. So she drove Tony to the wealthy areas outside of Indianapolis, hoping they would just, you know, he would recognize the house. They would find the house. That never happened, unfortunately. Uh, Tony met Brian by chance again a year later when they happened to stop at the same bar. Tony got his license plate number, which bravo Tony, uh, which he gave to Detective Wilson. She ran the plates and, or plate and realized it was registered to a Herbert Baumeister. So as Wilson discovered more about him, she agreed with Vandergriff that Tony had narrowly escaped becoming another victim of a cold-blooded serial killer. 
So before we continue on, I'm going to insert an ad so we can take a little breather so you guys can get a drink, a snack, whatever you want. Um, and we'll get into what happens to Herbert. So Detective Mary Wilson um, paid Herbert a visit at one of his thrift store locations. The visit visibly shook Herbert and heightened law enforcement's suspicions. So on the TV show American Justice, Detective Wilson explains how Herbert got nervous and fidgety upon her visit. And when she presented evidence of him being seen at the bars around the time of these men's disappearances, it sent him literally into a panic. Now, it was known that the married father of three frequently visited gay bars. Now, when asked to search his property, he absolutely refused. So they approached Julie, uh, Juliana, Julia Juliana. Um, Detective Wilson was conflicted because at the point she didn't know if Herbert had anything to do with the missing men, and yet they were going to tell his wife that they were investigating her husband for a homosexual homicide. Um, Wilson went to Juliana telling her what she had told her husband, hoping to get her to agree to a search. Although she was absolutely horrified and shocked after what she heard, she were also refused. <laughs> like... She just really trusted her husband, which, you know, good on you, sis. But next, Wilson tried to get the Hamilton County officials to issue a search warrant, but they also refused, saying there was not enough conclusive evidence to warrant it. Now, Herbert appeared to suffer an emotional breakdown over the next six months. Um, by June, Juliana had reached her limit. Uh, the Children's Bureau canceled the contract with Sabalot, and they faced bankruptcy. Um, the fairy tale that she had been living began to dissipate, and her loyalty to her husband also did the same. Now, while the loyalty to her husband was kind of going down the drain, she could not forget the skeleton that her son had found two years prior to all of this. Um, so when she first spoke to Wilson, she wanted to kind of tell her, but I guess she didn't because she was just too loyal to her husband because she thought, eh, he had absolutely nothing to do with it. Like, that's crazy kind of thing. But she ended up deciding to file for a divorce and tell Detective Wilson about the skeleton. Um, she would also let detectives search the entire property. And Herbert and their son were visiting Herbert's mother at Lake Wallace, and Julia contacted a lawyer. Now, of course, with all this happening, soon the life that they knew started to crumble. So the business started going down the drain and started to fail. Herbert's unpredictable behavior increased but daily. Uh, Julie filed for divorce, told Detective Wilson about the skeleton, and contacted a lawyer. Um, she was still in denial over the allegations about Herbert, but she definitely wanted answers. Now, when the skeletal remains were originally discovered, Herbert explained it away as model skeletons his father used as medical practice, as we said earlier. Now, his dad was a pack rat and kept everything. So he decided to bury them in the backyard, and that was an acceptable answer for Juliana at the time. 
Her attorney contacted Detective Wilson with the information. That's how Detective Wilson was told. Now, on June 24, 1996, Wilson and three Hamilton County officers walked on to the patio at the house. Um, as they looked closely, they could see the small rocks and pebbles where the children had played, um, and they were bone fragments. Forensics confirmed that they were human bones in the play area outside. Now, the following day, police and firemen began excavation. Bones were found absolutely everywhere, um, even on the neighbor's land. Early searches found about 5,500 bone fragments and teeth. It was estimated that the bones were from around 11 men, although only four victims could be identified, unfortunately, bless the souls of the other ones and the ones that were identified. Um, Goodlett, who was 34, Stephen Hell, 26, Richard Hamilton, 20, and Manuel Resendez, 31. Juliana began to <laughs> freak out and panic, as one would. Uh, she feared for the safety of their son, Erich, who was currently with Herbert. Um, now, the authorities also feared something could happen. Now, Herbert and Juliana were in the beginning stages of divorce, and it was decided that before the discoveries of um, the skeleton remains, skeletal remains, hit the news, Herbert would be served with custody papers demanding that Erich be returned to Juliana. Now, by this point, Herbert had taken the son to the lake house and emptied the joint bank account he shared with Juliana. So they were all freaking out, as one would. Now, Herbert, he was served. Um, he did turn Erich over without incident, um, figuring it was just kind of like a legal maneuver. Little did he know some other stuff was happening. So, Detective Wilson did not arrest him because the body was found in another jurisdiction. So, she went from being in charge of the case to being able to just assist in the case, which was probably very hard for her. But the Hamilton County Police, on the other hand, could have at least detained him when they dropped or when he dropped their son off to her, but they didn't. Um, saying they didn't know exactly what they had. So the victim's families were absolutely baffled that they did not detain him after the bodies were found on the property. Now, once news of the bodies began um, coming out in the news, Herbert fled to Canada, of course. And on July 3rd in 1996, his body was discovered inside of his car at Pinery Park in Ontario, Canada. He shot himself in the head and killed himself. So if they would have just taken him into custody, he would be serving probably life in prison for murdering these 11 men. Now, you're going to be real mad at the end of the story because not only did it, you know, was 11 men, they suspected him of many more. And I'll tell you about that in a minute. So he shot himself in the head. He did leave a three-page suicide note mentioning his failed marriage, failed business, and his kids. He ended the note by saying, quote, I am going to eat a peanut butter sandwich and then go to sleep, end quote. There was no mention of the skeletons found on his property. Uh, with Juliana's help, investigators of the Ohio murders of the gay men pieced together evidence that linked him to the I-70 murders. 
Juliana provided receipts showing that Herbert had traveled I-70 during the times that the bodies were found along the interstate. Bodies had stopped appearing beside the highway about the time that Herbert moved into Fox Hollow Farms, where there was plenty of land for him to hide them instead. Um, the remains of 11 were found, 8 identified. Um, that's an updated number as of earlier. Um, including, like I said earlier, Roger Goodlett, which Tony totally helped, I think, anyway. So, now, to the I-70 murders, this is the part that I said you were going to be mad at. Um, two years after he killed himself, police connected him to murders of nine additional men between 1980 and 1990. Nine men were found murdered in the Indiana-slash-Ohio area. The victims were all found half-dressed, and the majority died from strangulation. Investigators believe that the bodies discovered on Herbert's property were killed in the same fashion. Additionally, all of the nine men were from the Indianapolis area, and most were gay. After the discovery of the nine bodies, police began looking for a man that was dubbed the I-70 killer and the interstate strangler. They dubbed him either. So he had like two different names in the public, I guess, or media. Um, so as the bodies were found along I Interstate 70 between Indianapolis, Indiana, and Columbus, Ohio. Now, law enforcement estimated that Herbert Baumeister could have killed up to like 27 people. Um, now, Herbert told Tony Harris it was closer to 50. So this man only killed probably, I'm going to say 20 plus because I can't really believe a freaking murderer by no means. Uh, not always anyway. Um, but he killed quite a lot of people and most of these people were never found. And he went and killed himself in his car because they failed to detain him. Makes me angry. I don't know about you, but it makes me angry. Anyway, so, uh, Herbert was believed to be the I-70 strangler. Um, referring to the stretch of highway where the bodies of the nine nine men were found like we were discussing earlier. Now, um, the deaths occurred during the spring and summer months only. So, uh, if it wasn't for Tony Harris, though, taking the chance of leaving the bar with, quote, Brian Smart slash Herbert Baumeiser, then who knows how long the killings would have continued. So, that is all I have for Fox Hollow Farm. But you guys should go check out um, Ghost Adventures Season 9. Um, it was aired in 2014. It was Episode 9, Season 9. They actually investigated the Fox Hollow Farm. Uh, they caught some really cool evidence of the paranormal, which I am a complete believer in paranormal. Um, don't judge me. Everybody likes what they like and believes what they believe. We shouldn't, you know, bash each other for it, but I don't really care. So, they actually heard some loud banging noises, some knocks. They caught a crap ton of EVPs, um, just for instance. They had one that said, help. They had, I'm dead. I don't know. Herb did it. I'm here. In the middle. Found it. Here. Getting cold or getting close. So... They found a bunch of evidence, including someone saw, like, a dark figure in a closet. Of course, that was not on camera. That was kind of, like, out of the eye, side eye, you know. Um, they also caught some, like, light anonymous. I can never say that word, so you'll have to laugh at me later. But 
Yeah, so it's pretty cool. So season nine, episode nine, go check it out. I think it was a really good episode. I've been following Ghost Adventures. I couldn't even tell you how long. So go check it out. It'd be cool. So that's all for today's episode, guys. Tune in next week for another riveting case. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out my Instagram at morbid period curiosity period TC podcast for photos related to each case covered. Feel free to email me case suggestions as well at morbid curiosity TC podcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I appreciate all you spooky listeners. Stay kind, stay spooky, and don't murder anyone.